0: In this conversation, I had the pleasure of chatting with Tom King, the Chief Investment Officer of Nanook Asset Management, an award-winning sustainable investment manager based in Sydney. Tom's also an Olympic gold medalist, having won gold in sailing at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Tom has such a high-performance focus, and it was fascinating talking about what it takes in terms of mindset to become the best in the world. I found the skills crossover between sailing and investing surprising, But once I understood it, it was no surprise that Tom's become so good at managing risk and uncertainty. The chat with Tom was a treat for me. We got to talk about investment and high performance, all in the one conversation. I hope you find it as valuable as I did. Enjoy. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time today to uh, catch up. It's really great to um, sit down and talk to someone who has got such an interesting uh, background. I mean, I love the high-performance sport just as a general observation of, you know, bringing the best out of human performance. And, you know, you've been to the to the pinnacle. So perhaps we could, um, before we get into your funds management expertise and what you're currently doing, perhaps we could talk a little bit about uh, what got you into sailing was it as a teenager, or like a, what? When did when did you pick I, up sailing? I started sailing um, late
1: in a sporting context. I learnt to sail when I was about twelve, and it wasn't something that my family was involved in. But I have my family to thank for it. We, you know, learned to sail course over a long weekend and really enjoyed it. Ended up getting a small boat. It was something that we did on weekends and school holidays, and then that led into club racing in Melbourne um, when I was 13 or 14. And my journey really started there. And it took 20, or whatever it was, 15 years um,
0: to get to the end of that journey. Yeah, sure. So was it at the beginning of that, like, I mean, you obviously loved that long weekend because, you know, you must have pestered your parents, but did it take you long to kind of Find a swing and know that that was something you wanted to be really great at, or is it just was it just a passion and fun that kind of drove you in the first instance?
1: There was an underlying enjoyment of the activity that I had from the very beginning, and that's something that I still have today. The competitive side of it came much later, um, but wouldn't have been a surprise to anyone who knew me well i enjoyed sailing because i liked being out on the water and outdoors before sailing fishing was the thing that got me excited and still today i'd you know, probably rather go fly fishing than go sailing mm. but once i got involved with it it's a it's a fascinating sport that's very complicated and has many different dimensions to it and i have a curiosity to understand how things work and found sailing really interesting and wanted to get better at it because of that and then yeah I'm a perfectionist uh, and very competitive and they're not traits that you know endear you to people but sailing ended up being my outlet for that. Um, I, I found something that I had a set of skills that were relevant to and, you know, I enjoyed it and the more time and effort I put into it, the more reward I got out of it and, you know, ultimately the driver became getting as good as possible and testing myself and ultimately the place to do that in
0: sailing is at the Olympic Games. Yeah, sure. I mean, it sounds to me like there's a couple of things in there or there's more than a couple, but... The, the there's the competitive aspect which you know sounds like to you is pretty innate like it's just something you came in with you were all a bit hyper competitive like have you, are you one of x number of siblings or like what's your family setup
1: i have a younger brother uh, a couple of years mm. younger than me and he's not particularly competitive nor did he particularly like sailing and he was never really in, involved in that mm. um but yeah certainly i you know, I have a competitive streak in me that I can see in my children um, now. <laughs> poor, poor things. Uh, yeah, and I mean it's been interesting recently. We just finished watching Michael Jordan's The Last Dance series yeah, wow. on Netflix and I've had a number of people, you know, tell me I should watch it and many of them have been quite quite critical of Jordan and you know that he came across as not being a particularly nice guy and Margs and I watched that and thought this is fantastic this guy just has the traits that make for a great athlete he's super competitive and committed you know to a level that no one else is and that's what ultimately tends to prevail in most sports
0: Mm. yeah that's interesting um so the other thing there Tom I mean there's that natural competitiveness but then, you know, you mentioned, you know, you love, like, is, is it the strategy around sailing, the intellectual challenge or the physical challenge? Like, what is it about the actual sailing as a sport uh, other than the outdoors, right, um, that that sort of your natural aptitude kind of lines up with?
1: So sailing is a sport where all of those things are relevant and mm. people with, you know, one of those skills can become a very good sailor by developing the others. Um, for me, it was the intellectual challenge that you know I started with, and that was my strength. So understanding how you know how sails worked, understanding aerodynamics, understanding hydrodynamics, you know, being able to make a boat go faster through that kind of knowledge, understanding meteorology and the logic behind racing and being able to utilize that Um, i was never an innately talented um, seaman i didn't hop in a boat and have the kind of feel for it that many young sailors do and as a result i was well it took me a long time to become really competitive with those kind of people but Mm -hmm. in the end you know determination And commitment to it over a long period of time gave me that um the it's the piece that's um not widely understood is you know i had a very strong academic background as well um so i you know was top three in the state in hsc and i topped my engineering degree at uni whilst i was doing the sailing stuff um and so i had a very sort of Strong mathematics science background that was, you know, part of my strength as a sailor. But then over, you know, a decade of training at international level, you know, that just becomes one quiver in the bow as you develop all the other skills that you need. Hmm.
0: Well, I can imagine, um, you know, that because in sailing, you know, there are so many moving parts, and 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 there are so many. I guess parts things that you can calculate in racing sailing. Did you have to, you know, frame probability or like how does that actually work when you're you're against an opponent? You've got you know the wind, you've got the tides, you've got you know wind attack, and you know I don't know all the terms, but like how much probability and maths are you bringing when you're on the job?
1: I mean, it's a, it's a great question. We could spend all day talking about that alone. Hmm. The the game of sailing is a risk-reward decision-making game and it has many sort of parallels to decision-making in markets, which is one of the reasons I've ended up doing what I do now. And yeah, at a high level, I mean, the game of sailing is about making um, risk-reward decisions in a complex, changing environment about which you know uh, or or about which you can make some predictions but in which there is a sort of element of uncertainty against Mm -hmm. a large fleet of competitors trying to do the same thing who are able to influence each other and the you know in one sense the game is very simple at any point in time you can be on port tack or starboard tack you can be long or you can be short You, Mm. you Uh, but in doing so you're um
2: uh, you
1: know potentially taking risk from which you might make a gain or or lose out and that yeah lends itself to structured thinking around decision making more simple in that environment and yeah I, i mean i think i had a an ability to make sense of some of that in a way that others didn't and that was probably a hindrance for most of my sailing career because at a high level in sport your intuitive thinking becomes much more important than logical structured thinking and particularly so in a complex environment like a sailing race you don't have time to think through things you have to trust your instincts and that wasn't natural for me uh, and it took a long time to build that confidence it wasn't really to right at the end of my sailing career that I started to do that effectively. But I had a, a base behind me, you know, a depth of understanding that I don't think many of my competitors had that meant when I was able to get into that zone is probably the right word, um, you know, I was very good at it um, because it was backed up by sort of substantial, you know, um, there, there, was, there was a lot of substance to what, what we were doing
0: i find that so fascinating tom because you know i hear that you know because you know as you've stated you weren't naturally intuitive in the sailing process originally it's almost like you've had to build through process build through repetition build through work a it's almost like a you know you've built reverse engineered enju- intuition if you like which you know, kind of what is is intuition is anyway, isn't it? Really? Like um, if you can be- know I, something so well. Sorry, go on.
1: I, I think the, the better the sort of logical underpinnings of your intuition, you know, the better your intuitive decision making is going to be. But making intuitive decisions is not something that comes naturally to everyone. Um, it does come naturally to some people. A lot of young kids hop in boats and have a wonderful feel for the wind and racing, they don't need to be taught. It's innate, it's intuitive. Um, Mm. But my sort of experience watching those kind of people and competing against them is uh, they don't tend to put in the hard work over time and as pressure gets greater and greater over time, they tend not to deal with pressure so well. Yeah, interesting.
0: So, Tom, how did did you – I mean, you're obviously a very cerebral fellow – Uh, how did you early in your competitive career in sailing deal with the inherent uncertainty, you know, the stuff that you can't control? Like, did you wrestle with that in the first, you know, was there stuff around managing uncertainty that you struggled with originally?
1: I I don't think back on my sailing career and think that that was a, problem i i found not being as good as i thought i should be very you know challenging and frustrating and motivating for a long time Mm. yeah uh, i mean the the uncertainty and managing that you know became very important at the olympic games Uh, and that's a very unusual environment and our sport is quite unusual in that environment because it's a decision-making sport Um, there's an enormous amount of pressure at an olympic games there's a set of competitors who all want to win which is also very unusual you know most olympic sports even at world championship level people are generally using the world championships as a stepping stone towards the olympic games you turn up at the olympics Mm. and you have a fleet of people who all want to win and are prepared to take risks to do that and perversely the pressure of the Olympics tends to make people's decision-making worse in that environment and in the Olympic environment there are not just a lot of pressures but there are a lot of things you can't control and performing well you know under that kind of pressure you know comes from I mean in part from not being distracted by that kind of stuff and being able to isolate what what it is that you can really control and not being disturbed by the things that you
0: can't yeah well you I mean you, you occur to me as someone who has a steely nerve and yeah I mean I, I, I don't remember the format of your racing at the Olympics was it over X number of races and uh, how, how did that work so in Sydney our event was over 11 races
1: yep. with you know w- with a scoring system where you got points equal to your placing in each race and you could discard your worst two results mm-hmm. so it's a cumulative thing i mean in effect every race is part of the final they'll count sure equally and i mean that's to even out the the vagaries of you know weather and you know and the course over over time yeah so you i mean you're racing in a fleet of 35 boats in each race and the key to winning is not just winning a few races it's been consistent through the regatta and not having too many bad races either
0: yeah sure so tom it sounds like uh you know it's no surprise you've ended up in the investment world because the parallels in thinking in terms of managing risk and uncertainty between sailing and investment seem uh you know pretty obvious as you talk to them I'm uh, wondering what it was that got you into investing like what got you into your current line of work
1: it wasn't as obvious a segue for me at the time. Um, certainly, while I was sailing, I started thinking about um, the parallels between the game of sailing and um, markets. It's you know pretty obvious if you look at a chart of wind direction and wind speed and see a chart of a share price and volume that you you know dealing with something that might be in some way comparable and so I'd always had a a question in my mind as to whether there was something that could be translated but while I was sailing I finished a mechanical engineering degree I accepted a job with an industrial consulting business um, in late 1998 and put that on hold for a couple of years while we trained and competed full-time up to the Sydney games and my plan was always that I would retire from sailing after Sydney and go and start working um, in engineering as an industrial consultant and that's what I did. And so my initial sort of professional career was um, was nothing to do with finance. Um, it was in a really interesting business that was a small Sydney-based consulting business that had an arm in the UK that did uh, performance improvement work with large manufacturing businesses. They had this extraordinary claim that they could improve the performance of any manufacturing process by ten to forty percent within two to three months with no capex, and they, you know, were able to do that very consistently. Which, as you can imagine, is quite a profound achievement. Incredibly, sort of value additive, um, yeah, wow. and. What attracted me was it was, you know, doing something better, doing something more efficiently, you know, and that was something that I've always, you know, wanted to do. Uh, And yeah, I I had about a year there and had some really interesting experiences in consulting with some really smart people. Um, Ultimately, that business fell apart because of decisions at a business level and conflicts between the personalities involved. But I saw the uh, potential to add value uh, and I was exposed to doing that as a consultant, which was a very difficult way to do that in a sustainable manner and a very poor way to capitalize on the economic benefit of what we were doing so you know my first job was in a big i mean you know as a trainee in a big toilet paper manufacturing plant in the uk and we were in effect cranking the line by so you know working out what the problems were and solving them and you know that delivered something like an additional million dollars worth of you know profitability to the line within a couple of weeks and that's obviously worth a you know, multiple of that yeah, to yeah, the yeah. shareholders. And I was, you know, at, we as a firm were getting paid, a, you know, a, whatever it was, a tenth of that annual value add. And I was as a consultant getting paid a tenth of that. So I'm three orders of magnitude away from yeah. the value of what we we're doing. And that led me to start thinking about, well, how can you do this in a way that gives you more leverage, you know, coming at it from an ownership perspective and, you know, gives you more financial leverage to the outcome. And so i wanted to find a way to segue into finance initially to sort of pursue that kind of opportunity um, to make the world a better place and profit from it. And I had the opportunity to go and join a contemporary of mine from university, uh, from Melbourne university, who'd set up a Australian equities fund management business in Melbourne. And that was my sort of entry into the investment space and I, once again, was, wasn't there for a long time, but that sort of gave me exposure in listed markets uh, and an education in you know valuation and some of the, the tools that go around I- investing. Uh, and yeah, for, for different reasons, that, that role didn't end up being the right one or wasn't the right place for me at that point in time. Uh, and I ended up, going into investment banking so I spent three or four years at Rothschild um, in a variety of different roles initially working alongside the CEO on a a handful of special projects but then ultimately doing most of my time in the corporate advisory business a bit in the banking business and a bit in the managed investment scheme business and I because I built out um, experience Across quite a wide range of areas within finance. And then I had an opportunity to work at Consolidated Press more in an investment specific role. So I worked in a small team that looked after most of the sort of unlisted um, assets at CPH, other than media and gaming, which was a pool of, you know, fairly large pool of eclectic investments that Kerry had bought and. I was there at a time after James had taken over and he was looking to sort of rationalize that and institutionalize their um, uh, private equity business mm. and that was a you know, very very interesting place to be you know was involved in some pretty interesting transactions met some interesting people you know, learned a lot about you know a broader set of broader set of you know elements of of finance and investment. Mm. And then, yeah, that role sort of came to a natural close through the financial crisis. You know, James' balance sheet became, you know, stretched and we ended up selling the Consolidated Pastoral Company and the sort of uh, appetite for building a private equity version of Elliston, if you like, had, had um Uh, sort of evaporated and at that time I, you know, got involved with the partners in the business I'm involved in um, now. So it's been, you know, it's been a long journey for me to get to where I have Um, and in, you know, in a way that's not dissimilar to my experience in sailing, I've had the opportunity to progressively put together, you know, more and more pieces of the jigsaw, you
0: know, to support what I do today. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've got into, you know, you've had a number of years sort of looking at the investment universe fairly broadly, particularly with your time at Rothschild and then with your time at CPH. And, and then you've got into a business which is, you know, in many ways at the time, well ahead of its time uh, and, and quite narrow in its focus. Or uh, So, can you talk me through what was it that sort of dr- pushed you or not pushed you, but what drove you into... Uh, you know a sustainable investment opportunity uh you know sort of well ahead of its time well it
1: was i mean it, it was a series of conversations with the founding partners in the business immediately sort of after the depths of the global financial crisis in two thousand and nine and those conversations started with a very simple question: Where are the long term opportunities coming out of this mess? And those conversations gravitated towards, um, in a corny way, things to do with saving the world in areas like food, energy and water, where it seemed to the group of us that those were areas that were inevitably likely to grow and change over a long period of time in a way that was interesting from an investment perspective. And we... Know, spent probably six months trying to validate that thesis and in the end we convinced ourselves that yes the world was likely to change and that there was an opportunity set attached to that that was very interesting from an active management perspective and interesting more broadly from an investment perspective because it related to a, a set of risks that are Pretty deeply embedded across most people's portfolios, certainly back then and still today. Mm.
0: So that that sounds fascinating because you know you've got into this world by the sounds of things. I might be interpreting it incorrectly, but you've got into this sustainable investment world from the perspective of where's the economic opportunity set uh, coming out of the GFC in the first instance, almost prior to. Uh, a, a altruistic uh you know like you say save the world kind of mentality it was more economically driven in the first instance is that a is that a fair summary
1: uh, that's absolutely accurate. It was a series of conversations about where there might be good long term investment opportunities and the i guess the business opportunity that arose around that was a function of other people not being particularly focused on those sort of opportunities or, or those areas and the, the related opportunities and risks. And so there was a, an opening for us to start a firm that specialised in those areas um, that we believed, you know, provided the you know potential to deliver good, long-term investment outcomes to our clients um, but offered something more than that because the relevance of what we were looking at was broader than just constructing a fund or two and selling that. There's a very important set of risk implications around what's or what we thought was going on in the world. And then, you know, on top of that, there's a, um, I mean, as you put it, there's a sort of altruistic, motive. Um, and I describe that more as, you know, we had this opportunity to do this thing that no one else was doing. And the fact that it was in areas that are clearly good for the world has a very nice feel to it that, you mm-hmm. know, motivates me to want to do it. I'd, you know, quite randomly studied, um, I mean, I'm not probably not surprisingly given, you know, my sporting background, but I'd studied wind energy, in my final year at, um, of engineering, uh, mm-hmm. long before you know there was a large global wind industry, um, and so I had a you know I had an interest in some of these things before we um, before we started the business. Uh, but the fact that we're you know we're doing something that is aligned with making the world a better place is a, is a nice facet of what we do. But it doesn't underpin the
0: um reason for the business's existence yeah sure so tom i was you know rather than getting into the you know nuts and bolts of you know what you're buying and why and all, all all that i was kind of more curious in the first instance and i know a lot of that stuff you've written about like in your monthly reports and your fact sheets and like there's a lot of detail on your website uh regarding your you know current holdings and, you know, what your thinking is and what have you. So, you know, obviously people interested, go and uh, have a um, a good read of all that. I was going to just ask you sort of questions uh, around investing in sustainable opportunities more broadly and almost philosophically. Look, I, I think of sustainable investing and, and must have been hard when you started because there seems there's a history of you know pioneers or innovation and and you know the creative destruction that occurs in and around innovation and how do you invest in companies that are sort of pioneers and you're almost you're almost a pioneer in their funds management space around this stuff as well so how do you how do you, how do you balance you know next generation technology with the creative destruction that comes with that that, that makes for a very challenging investment landscape it, it makes for a really interesting investment landscape
1: and it makes for a, you know, landscape that gives relevance to active investment supported by, you know, research in the areas that we're focused on. It sort of all, I guess, t- ties to why we think there's a, a role for what we, what we do. But you're right that when we started the business, there was and there still is a huge amount of uncertainty about how some of these parts of the economy might evolve and what that might mean for participants in those industries and I mean it's a tangential discussion if you want to go there but the analysis that we've done would suggest that the sort of net effect of what's likely to happen in coming decades is probably not good in a general sense for investment outcomes. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the the nature of the areas that we've focused on we think are, you know, attractive. They're generally industries that are likely to grow faster than the broader economy over time and they're associated with levels of complexity to do with, government policy and changing industry structure and sometimes technology shifts or new technologies that mean that you know the, the market's not always going to get it right and if you can generate good insights about the way those industries are likely to evolve, you've got some chance of leveraging that um, into good in investments. Um, but when we started, we, we quite deliberately started the business with a long short fund. Um, Mm. because we didn't know whether the kind of product that we run today would work Um, and that was a format that allowed us to be much more narrowly focused around I mean we started out on clean energy technologies and energy efficiency technologies allowed us to be much narrower in our um, scope as we Mm. developed a sort of research expertise and still be able to manage risks appropriately Um, Mm. but as we you know, spent time doing that and built out our coverage, um, we also developed a, an understanding of some of the sort of phenomenon you're talking about. And um, it's absolutely true that there's a, you know, there's not necessarily a connection between the growth that you'll see in um, many of the areas we look at and uh, economic value creation and ultimately great shareholder returns over the longer term um, you know, there are some fantastic examples of the opposite happening in areas like you know, led lighting chips or solar panels and things like that and, and that's likely to be repeated and within those industries you'll find you'll find businesses that are able to benefit from the way the economics are evolving and you'll find points in time where you can buy Businesses at prices from which you'll generate good returns, and that's sort of how we've approached
0: um, what we what we do. Yeah, I mean that that's a advertisement for good active management in this space. Um, and and you know, the converse to that is the passive side, which you know I can imagine you know in the current environment must be a little frustrating because you know passive or factor investing in the ESG world. Some of the valuations are there a bit nosebleed and it must be hard to um, know how that's all going to end. I
1: th- I think there's a role for both passive and active um, investment to, to operate in parallel. Uh, if you look at the areas we invest in, passive investing is not easy. There are not many products out there that will give you the kind of exposures that we are trying to give people through, through our fund and yeah th- there's a, a a real risk that passive won't deal with the sort of peculiarities of some of the areas that we invest in um, and I'm I'm thinking of you know areas like the solar industry if you follow the way in which sustainable technologies have developed historically. They've all followed very similar pathways in terms of regulatory progression and industry development and, in a looser way, um, investment performance. Uh, You may have come across a thing called the Gartner Curve, um, which is a framework for Considering the sort of hype cycle around new technologies, it's a very good yeah. sort of proxy for thinking about the, the development of sustainable technologies. And the hype is akin to, you know, how the market might be pricing some of these things. And you've, we, you know, we've seen time and time again industries go through these kind of cycles where subsidy or policies start to dictate that a particular technology will grow very significantly over time and that generally favors a small number of niche operators within niche end markets who happen to have the right technologies to meet the challenge and they'll benefit enormously in the short term you know usually achieving very high rates of growth at very high levels of profitability for a short period of time but as you know that happens competition comes in, industries start to scale, economies of scale come into play and costs start to come down and the um, apparent sort of high growth and high profitability that might have been evident, you know, early on evaporates and, you know, reality hits home and the the areas that we invest in are largely applied industrial technologies. They're you know, technology solutions to widespread problems in the economy. They're not consumer products with large amounts of brand equity. And in most of the sort of things we're looking at, you're dealing with you know very competitive industries and products that are somewhat commoditized in nature. And you know what we've seen over time is you can have spectacular growth in these areas, but uh, at an industry level, there won't be much value creation because companies are having to continue to invest in expanding their capacity to grow volume in an environment of increasing competition and falling prices, and that's not a good scenario for growing profits over time or growing you know profits at good return on capital, uh, and where i think you know the the active role is particularly relevant you know in what we do is you're going to see these periods like we're seeing today with extraordinary you know share price performance in the electric vehicle space but it's not limited to electric vehicles if you look at anything with hydrogen in its name at the moment it's probably doing yeah. something similar and our experience would suggest that this is a sort of temporary phenomenon at the very early stage of development of these industries and you're already starting to see a, a raft of you know, peculiar IPOs come to market while they have the opportunity to in this environment, um, but sooner or later reality will Uh, Catch up with them, and you know many of the businesses that are listing today at extraordinary prices won't exist in four or five years' time, as you know, as things become more competitive, um, as returns decline, uh, and you know things become a bit more rational. And so, I guess our we're we're victims of our own experience and history to some extent at the moment. But we think that you know there's a role for investing in a. you know pragmatic and cautious manner in these areas because if you do keep looking you will find you know businesses that are going to benefit from that same kind of growth in these areas like hydrogen or electric vehicles that are not priced in the way that prominent uh, stocks are they might be suppliers into those industries they might be businesses that can capitalize on you know the the availability of a cheaper product down the track Um, and so yeah look it's it's really encouraging at the moment that we're seeing the world change more quickly because that'll present more opportunities for us going forward in in the years to come it's pretty challenging at the moment to be looking at some of these you know companies that um, are, are trading the way that they are
0: yeah, sure, Tom. Uh, in regards to the regulatory and political landscape, I mean, it seems to me that the the big sustainability goals are, are more or less set by governments, and and that these are obviously influenced by politics. So, if we look at the upcoming U.S. election, uh, by way of example, like how binary do you perceive? this election to be in terms of regulatory risks and, and outcomes for, for your type of investing?
1: The, the US election one's a pretty interesting one because that is binary in terms of, particularly if the Democrats were to get control of Congress at the same time as Biden wins, there, there'll be a profound shift in policy that will have a significant effect over quite a long period of time on a range of areas that we're interested in. You know as a generalization uh, I don't think the universe in which we invest is you know particularly more heavily regulated than you know most of the broader economy every industry is regulated you know the, the banking industry is extremely heavily regulated the automotive industry is regulated every, everything is regulated these days um, there are some prominent examples of Significant distortions of market economics through subsidy in a small part of our investment universe, but most of what we look at doesn't suffer from that. Um, And where you do get that kind of um, uh, impact, um, what we've learned over time is it's not possible to follow that in detail on a global basis, but what you can follow is the longer term government objectives that are informing the kind of subsidy policies that are being put in place. And once you understand what governments are trying to achieve in terms of, for example, renewable energy um, adoption, you can then assess whether the policies that are in place or the subsidies, the mandates, whatever it happens to be, um, are achieving the outcomes that they're intended to. And where you get shifts in policy, it's typically because um, what's happening on the ground is not aligned with what governments have decided that they want to achieve, and the, the, those overarching policy frameworks don't tend to change by surprise. They're developed over long periods of time. They're, you know, debated, and they're, you know, well known and well publicised. If you want to go looking for them, what tends to surprise people is when you see sudden shifts in mandates or subsidies. But for the most part those kind of changes are in some way predictable and our, our, our approach you know is to think of that as both a risk and an opportunity so we invest in areas that are exposed to some of those subsidies um, and we're you know happy to do that where we can get comfort that the subsidies are likely to you know persist in a way that's consistent with our thesis but where you get uncertainty you know we'll, we'll tend to avoid those kind of opportunities or we'll look for circumstances where things become very asymmetric in nature. You have a market that's priced for one policy outcome when there is a good prospect that it might be something different. Um, Mm. And and that could be the case, you know, with the US election. Um, I don't, you know, I don't see it in the market at the moment, but if you had a circumstance where, um, you know the the, the polls were fifty fifty, and the you know solar stocks were pricing in a continuation of the you know Trump policy framework. You know
0: th- th- there could be
1: opportunities there.
0: So Tom, it's interesting listening to you describe how you think about risk and and markets. I, I, I mean, I can't help but see the parallels with how you trained in your sailing. Well, it. it what seemed obvious to me was when when you were talking about the uh, long-term objectives of government versus the sh- short to medium-term uh, gyrations of individual companies and markets, it, 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 that it, sailing just jumped out at me. It was like, you know, what you're out on the ocean, and we know which way the wind's blowing, but there's 35 boats. Uh, you know, who who navigates? It's that short to medium-term stuff that actually Sort of dictates who gets out in front, and um, and you know the the analogy there seemed really, it seemed really obvious to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean that 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 is very true. You you, you know you're playing a game, you're competing in a sport where the you know, there are long term forecasts, weather forecasts, but very rarely do they impact the outcome on the time frame you know, that you're competing on. It's going to take 10 or 12 minutes to get to the first mark and who gets there first is going to be much more heavily dictated by the shorter-term, you know, variations in the wind um, which are harder to predict but not entirely unpredictable. Um, To be, you know, consistently good at that, you need a, a model of thinking around how all of that works and to be confident about when you should be taking a risk or not taking not taking a risk um, what I what was also in my mind was you know, the, the game of sailing like many things happens at different levels and we had this amazing coach I don't know if you've come across Victor Kovalenko but mm. he he's a Ukrainian who is now Australian he came out to Australia after Uh, the 96 Olympics and coached us. His teams in – his men's and women's teams in Atlanta had won gold and bronze and prior to that he would coached a bronze and a silver medal and his teams in Sydney won gold in the men's and gold in the women's. His teams in – Beijing won gold in the men's and gold in the women's. His team, his men's team won gold in London wow. and the same team won um, uh, silver in Rio. And he's won, you know, umpteen world championships um, since. And he has, these
2: sort of, you
1: know, he's a very deep thinker he's an extraordinary coach and mm-hmm. mentor and, you know, developer of athletes and people. And yeah, he has this sort of framework around um sport and competition that you you compete. sorry you you sail for fun you know the first level is you sail for fun the, the second level is you uh race for results and the third and highest level which not many people ever get to is you fight for glory and that's different from racing for results if you want to sail for fun you've just got to have the skills to be able to go and sail a boat around if you want to um, uh, race uh, for results you need a, a more advanced level of skill and you need to spend your time and attention on getting your boat around the course as fast as possible sailing the boat fast and Sailing on the wind shifts to get around the course. Uh, But there's a, and and most people, most people in competition compete at that level. They're trying to get around the course as fast as they can. But at the higher level, which is what you're doing if you're competing for an Olympic medal um, or trying to win a world championship, is fighting for glory. And in that sort of mode of competition, you've mastered the skills of sailing and you've mastered the skills of racing and your attention is focused on um, your competitors and psychology and uh, you're uh, yeah you're not concerned about how fast you get around the course and how well you sail you're only concerned about beating your opponents and using what you can to do that and it's a really sort of interesting framework that you see, or well, I saw, you know, parallels when I worked in investment banking, dealing with, um, you know, exceptional business leaders um, and the way that they think and, uh, you know, their higher level thinking. They're not thinking about the, you know, how do you make a business work and how do you value a company and how do you do an M and A transaction. There, that's all been done so much that it's innate they're starting to think about how do you how do you beat your competitor by understanding what they're thinking and they're doing and being able to influence that in a way that that helps you and uh yeah i mean that that's a sort of interesting framework and then the 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 one that sort of you know parlays into that is if you want to develop people who are able to do that what, what is it that you know, allows them to perform like that under pressure in an Olympic environment. And the, I guess the learnings I had around that stuff were, or are captured in a framework that would say you know, p- performance is a reflection of uh, three different things. Your performance reflects your confidence, it reflects um, your environment, and it reflects your personality um all of those things you know have an influence on how how you're going to perform when you're really put under pressure and your confidence is built up on your knowledge on your training um and on your near-term competitive experiences the 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 term in football's good form Mm -hmm. um and to have real confidence that's going to survive under that kind of pressure your you know you can't skirt the issue on the knowledge and training. You've got to have done the hard work. You need to have trained for years and years. But the bit – and a lot of coaches, you know, focus on those things and the bits that Victor sort of did that other people don't do is around the environment, so around the immediate environment you're creating for yourself, you know, for competition but your, you know, environment – in your life, you know the, the people you're dealing with, your family, your friends, and how you're interacting with them, because your you know, your experiences and your feelings from that are going to influence how you behave when you put under pressure. And then, what his skill was or is, and you see it in you know, occasionally in other very high level coaches is around personality, because when you put you know athletes under great pressure, their personality traits come out, and it's a you know. It's a very entertaining thing in sailing and I'm sure it happens in all sorts of other sports. You know, the way that athletes from different countries behave is often very um, easily related to stereotypes, you know, that would we all know you you put the Spanish guy under pressure and he's going to cheat and swear at you you know I'm doing him you you put the Japanese guy under pressure and he's going to be you know rigorously disciplined um and, and conservative and you know these traits are things that are deeply embedded in us all, and Victor's skill as a coach was really taking people who didn't you know and i I fall into the camp um didn't have the personality and you know strength of character and traits when i started to you know perform on the day that i had to to win olympic medal but over you know years of working with him he you know focuses on how does he help people develop that strength of character change their traits you know mature develop different strengths as a person because ultimately that's what you know is, is going to come out in the heat of the battle when they really need to, and it's a, it's a really interesting framework that I think has a lot of relevance in you know, other areas of life and in business, and you know, dealing with people and help helping, you know, train them, helping get get the best out of out of people.
0: Mate, I I you know love chatting about the sustainable investing uh, and what you're doing. I can't think of a better way to. Finish up our chat today. Uh, that there's so much juice and value in the frameworks you've just described regarding high performance in general. Uh, then that that was gold. So thanks so much for sharing that, Tom. We might pull it up. So if people want to uh, reach out to you or find out more about your fund and what it is that you're investing in, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: I think the easiest way to find us is via the website nanookasset.com.
0: Yeah, okay, well, I'll link to that. And, of course, you're not, on, uh, you're not on LinkedIn. Is there anywhere else that people can find you or is it uh, <laughs> it's just on your website? That's the best place. It's
1: probably best, best just to go to the website.
0: No, fair enough. Okay, well, Tom, that was, a, that was really multifaceted and great fun. I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my website, davidhobart.com. Until next time, hooray.